When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, you could stay in Winthrop on the east side of the park. Winthrop's a little town. It's off the off Highway 20, North Cascades Highway. Mm-hmm. It's a little, uh, looks like a wild, wild west town. Yeah. So Winthrop is a western theme. It looks like a, you know, a historic cowboy town. But but it's not, um, it's not really stupid. <laughs> it's, not it's, not stupid. <laughs> it's not stupid. It's not Matter of fact, they have a sign. <laughs> On the highway as you're approaching town, Winthrop, we're not stupid. It's their new marketing slogan. It's it's a marketing slogan. I like it. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is a mailbag episode where we answer questions about the national parks, road trips, camping, backpacking, gear, relationships, and pretty much whatever anyone wants to ask us. We have some really great questions this week. We'll be talking about Redwood National Park, which parks allow you to spread cremated ashes, where to stay when visiting North Cascades National Park, some scenic roads in Glacier National Park besides going to the Sun Road, and solo traveling in your 60s. All this and more coming up next. Okay, so what is our first question, Karen? Getting right into it, are you, Matt? Yes, I am. (laughs) How about good morning and how are you? (laughs) Good morning, how are you? What's our first question, Carrie? I could be anyone sitting next to you. I don't even think you've looked at me. <laughs> I know you're there. I could hear you. What if I like dyed my hair blue or something? <laughs> <laughs> Would that change what our first question is? <laughs> wow. You are all business today. Okay. Matt, our first question comes from Wendy. This is her question. I'm planning a trip for my brother and I and would like to see Redwood National Park, Humboldt, Redwoods State Park, and Sequoia and Kings National Park. I am hoping to go for at least a week, but that is still being figured out. I was wondering if you feel you could do all these parks in a week. Most likely, we won't be doing much hiking, just walking around to see the trees. We will be leaving from Seattle. I was also hoping you could give me some suggestions on towns to stay in around these areas. Last time I looked, there were no places open to stay in in Kings Canyon due to the fires. 
I've not driven down this way, so I'm not sure how far away things are. And sometimes a map doesn't help as much as asking people who have been that way. I'm also not looking for any place fancy to stay just clean and convenient. Any suggestions or input you have would be great. Okay, go. <laughs> uh, I forgot what the question, I forgot the question. The question is, if she wants to go to Redwood so we can talk about that first kind of where to stay and some things to do. And then the bigger question is, can she logistically in a week add on Kings and Sequoia so we could get to that second Okay. This was confusing to us when we first went to all the national parks. Redwood National Park, it's combined with the Redwood State Park. And so California and, and the NPS, they kind of co-manage this area. So when you're in that area, you're kind of not always sure if you're in the state park or national park, but it all has the same kind of look and feel. So don't don't let that bother you so much. Yeah, when we first went, we wanted to hike in Redwood National Park, quote unquote. So we didn't check out the the state parks there, the um, Del Norte Coast and Jedediah Smith and what's the other one, Prairie Creek. And those are equally fantastic. So if you do have a chance to visit all of them, there are great trails in all of them. So you should definitely see as much as you can. And don't limit yourself just to the National Park like we did. Since then, we've gone back and, and I think we've seen most of the most of these beautiful areas. Yeah, I really like the Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park. That's our favorite one. And that one is in the very far north of all of these. So it's kind of a coincidence, Wendy, because we you know, live in the Seattle area also, and we have driven down many times. And it's a great one-day drive from Seattle down to the town, the coastal town of Crescent City, which is right where Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park is. Yeah, it's about an eight to nine-hour drive from Seattle to Crescent City. We stayed at the Lighthouse Inn, And that's fine. It's nothing fancy, but it's minutes from the park. Right. Great location. There are some other lodging options in Crescent City, but not a lot. It's it's not a huge town. So the road that you take through Jedediah Smith is the Howland Hill Road, and it's narrow and winding. It gets you very close to the big trees and a couple of trails. You do have to pay attention because there are times if another car is coming towards you, you have to negotiate who's going to back up to the nearest spot where two cars can fit. But take your time and, and go slow. You'll be fine. Yeah. So drive that Howland Hill Road. And if you do have time to hike, so there's the Boy Scout Tree Trail. Now that's five and a half miles round trip. So that might be more than you want. But there is a new trail that they have built, the Mill Creek Trail to the Grove of Titans. The Grove of Titans has three of the tallest coastal redwoods in the world, and that hike is only about 0.7 miles from the trailhead. So researchers from Humboldt State University, they came upon these trees in 1998, and they gave the grove its name. And so these researchers, they they kept the location secret, but then park visitors found the trees anyway, and then they started sharing the GPS coordinates online back in 2011. So... Hikers, they started flocking to the area, and there there were a lot of unofficial social trails created to the grove, and it would damage the forest floor. So the Redwood Parks Conservancy, the Save the Redwoods League, and the National Park Service, they decided to build an official maintained trail to the grove, and that's been a couple years in the making. Right. And we've seen photos and I believe it's a boardwalk trail. We haven't done it yet because it literally just opened 
this year. It's brand new. It's on my list of things to do. In fact, I, I hope that we'll get to do that next month. We'll be driving through. Um, the one we have done is the Boy Scout Trail. Fantastic. So definitely check out Howland Hill Road for a beautiful little scenic drive. And if you have time to get out, go see that Grove of Titans. Yeah, then the next day, you could drive further south and see some of the other sections of the Redwood Parks, if you will. And the town of Arcata has lodging options like Hampton Inn, you know, just typical uh, motel brands. Uh, and that might be a good base for to spend several nights. Yeah, I think that uh, Crescent City is really too far north if you're going to be seeing more of the park. So we would definitely suggest heading further south. So in that Prairie Creek Redwood State Park, we'll just mention a few great trails. There is the James Irvine Trail. Now that one is 10 miles round trip, so probably more than you want. However, a very popular trail is Fern Canyon. Now, if you drive to Fern Canyon, it's only about a mile hike. Note that you are hiking mostly in water. It's it's a creek that you're walking through. And because it's so popular, you have to apply online for a parking permit to park from May 1st through September 30th in that Gold Bluffs Beach Fern Canyon parking area. You'll need a permit. Also in the Prairie Creek Redwood State Park, you have the Cathedral Trees Trail. And it's about three miles. It's, I think it's rated as an easy trail. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful one, too. Another good one we could recommend is in, this is actually in Redwoods National Park. It's the Lady Bird Johnson Grove. It's only 1.4 miles. It's an easy hike. And again, you'll see some beautiful trees. In the southern third of the parks is, is the 10-mile stretch of the Newton B. Drury Scenic Parkway. This is a, it's a beautiful drive with lots of big trees, so be sure to get off of Highway 101 at either exit 765 or 753, and then the Prairie Creek Visitor Center is along this parkway. Yeah, and another incredibly scenic drive with big trees is the 31-mile stretch of the Avenue of the Giants. Uh, This is located south of Arcata, and it parallels Highway 101. I love that drive. So if you have time to stop, there's the Founders Grove with a half-mile trail, and you'll see one of the most massive fallen trees in the world. So let's talk about whether or not Wendy should add on Sequoia and Kings Canyon to Redwoods. My first thought is that's a that's still a long way. I mean, that's another eight hours. We, we talked about from Seattle to Crescent City's eight hours. You know, it's another eight hours to the Sequoia and Kings Canyon area. And that's from Arcata, right? That's that, not that, from Crescent City. Right, that's from Arcata. Mm-hmm. So um, you kind of have to map out your driving days. And I, I don't know what else you're going to do during those driving days because you spend a lot of it driving. Right. If this is just a road trip and you're you're really not going to hike, I think it is doable. And, you know, when you say you have a week, does that mean you have the weekends on either side? So do you have nine days? So you do need to sit down and look at the mileage. Um, and, of course, if you end up going to Sequoia and Kings, you will have a much longer drive home. It's about 14 hours from Kings Canyon to Seattle. So, you know, for us, that would be a probably a two-day drive. I don't think we would try to do 14 hours in one day. Not in one day. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to just need to sit down and, you know, day one, drive to Crescent City, day two, and just map out what you want to do and see if it's worth your time. I mean, Sequoia and Kings Canyon 
are fabulous. And you could see the General Grant tree in the Grant Grove in Kings Canyon and the General Sherman tree in the Giant Forest in Sequoia. Those are both very easy short hikes and you could see some of the biggest trees in the world. So, you know, we love those parks. It just depends how many days you want to spend driving. And if you're going to go down, if you're going to add that onto your trip, you could stay in the Fresno area. We've always stayed at the little suburb of Clovis. They have Hampton Inns and, and other brand name motels there. And that, that's outside the park. It's kind of in the lowlands. From there, you drive up in elevation to the parks. Right. I know Wuxachi Lodge is closed currently due to the fires, but... If you can stay inside the park, there are, I think, two lodges on the Kings Canyon side. If you can get lodging inside the park, that's ideal. But yeah, if not, there are some suburbs outside that you could stay in and drive in. But one one other thing on this this particular question, if you're going to go down to the Kings and Sequoia area, and I know it sounds like you want to just see the big trees, which there's plenty of them up kind of at the entrances and and in the kind of central area of the park, but you don't want to go all the way there and not go back into Kings Canyon. Right. The canyon itself is spectacular. I'd hate for you to go all the way there and and miss that part too, just because you're looking for the big trees. That is one of the most scenic drives we've ever done, that drive back into the Cedar Grove area of the park where the road dead ends. Yeah, if you have time, definitely add that onto your list as well. So, Wendy, hope you have a great trip to see the big trees. And um, let us know. Let us know what you end up doing. We'd be curious to see what your um, what your final plan looked like. Okay, so from big trees to big hikes. I think that's our next question, Karen. Yes. The next question comes from Kimberly Joy. What a pretty name is that? I'll take that name. (laughs) All right. Her question is, well, she has three questions. Have you considered hiking a 14er or a hike like the Camino de Santiago? Have you thought about part-time van life? Yes, yes, and no. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Kimberly Joy. Kimberly Kimberly Joy. (laughs) Well, let's start with the, have you ever considered hiking a 14er? Let's go there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have driven to a 14er. We've driven to the visitor center in Rocky Mountain National Park, which I think is 14,000. So I think we qualify. We got out of the truck and walked a few uh, steps on the sidewalk. So I think that qualifies as a 14er. Now, I attempted the Longs Peak back back in the day. We, We talked about this in episode 74, didn't quite get to the peak. Mm, That was in Rocky Mountain National Park. Yes, that was in Rocky Mountain National Park. Are are there any other 14ers that we have contemplated? Well, first of all, for people who don't know, let's explain what a 14er is. It's a mountain peak that reaches an elevation of at least 14,000 feet. Now, to qualify, the peak must rise at least 300 feet above the saddle that connects it to the nearest 14er peak if another exists. So what they're saying is this peak has to have 300 feet of prominence. Now, Colorado has 53 peaks that qualify. Is the Alpine Visitor Center considered a 14er? I don't 14er? think, so. I don't think you're There's not enough prominence. <laughs> it's the s- story of my life. Not enough prominence. Okay. Wait, what are we talking about now? <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to switch the subject. <laughs> and I think you're just fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about would we do one? I don't think all 14ers are equal, right? Like right. Mount Rainier is a 14er. Mm-hmm. 
and, and we're never doing that. that. <laughs> that's that's completely different classification of difficulty than a lot of other. Now, I'm not saying the Colorado 14ers are easier by any, any stretch of the imagination, but it's very different when your pace camps at 5,000 feet and you're going to 14 versus, you know, you're starting at 11 or 12. Right. I think for me... I don't know. I would like to say I've done a 14er, but I want to do an easy one. <laughs> you want to do 14er? I, I want to How about do... a niner? You... <laughs> Here's the thing, Kimberly Joy. So as Matt you have to address her by her last name. They're not all created equal. So we have seen photos and videos from people attempting Mount Rainier, and there are literally ladders that are stretched across crevasses of ice where you have to maneuver across these ladders. And if you slip and fall, you are, you're a goner for sure. You have to rope up, you have ice axes, you have all that. So I don't want to do any of that. I just want to walk up. Yeah, so that's a no. <laughs> that, that, that's that's a long no. We're not doing fourteeners unless we just like stumble across one, which I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, just one that is non-technical where there's no chance, or I sh- shouldn't say no chance because there's always a chance where there's a much less chance of of dying. <laughs> more, <laughs> more part of your no answer. Yeah, more part of my no. But I, I'm not going to rule it out. Maybe there is an easy one out there. If anyone knows of an easy one that we could just walk up, more no. Or, <laughs> please let us know. All right, moving on to the next part of Kimberly Joy's question. I don't even know what Camino de, I know you don't. de, de Santiago is. I, I do. Because so so I, that's a long no also? Uh, no, it's not a no. I read, I read a book about this. It was really interesting. So mm. the Camino de Santiago is, it's the way of St. James. It's a Catholic pilgrimage to the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela. Okay, well... It's a multi-day trek, and there are different routes that you can take. They range from 62 to 620 miles. A lot of different ways you can do it. You know, people take a month or two months. But the thing I like about this is it's very civilized hiking, right? You hike for a day, then you stay in, um, you know, you stay in lodging, you have a good meal, you have a good breakfast, you hike some more. I think people on this pilgrimage, they stay in these places that are called albergues. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And those are the most common forms of lodging along the Camino. They're inexpensive. They're basic accommodations that are run by churches and local governments and nonprofits. And they offer up cheap beds in a variety of locations. So a lot of people do this. It's very popular. (laughs) Maybe we'll do that someday. (laughs) Well, you know what I want to do? I've seen the bucket. I know. I want to do some... Some maybe some of the other European treks like that. Um, I was just randomly Googling it, and I came across a website called wilderness-travel.com where they have hiking trips through Europe listed by country. And I, I looked at them all. I pretty much want to do all of them. <laughs> how many sidewalk cafes are there? <laughs> oh, there's a lot. In, per day. <laughs> like, how many, how many sidewalk cafes do you hike past? Well, I'm not sure about that's, sidewalk that's, cafes. That's what we're into. But um, the, so these trips, most of them were from 8 to 13 days. The ones that looked really incredible to me were Italy and Switzerland, but they also had England, Scotland, Ireland, Norway, and France. So basically, you know, you hike for a day, you have a guide, then you sleep in 
hotels and lodges and inns and you eat incredible food and you have good wine and then the next day you know you get up and do it again but but there's no sleeping in a tent there's no schlepping 40 pounds on your back yeah you're you're tr- you're looking for ways to get rid of the the parts of the backpacking that suck right <laughs> That's for sure. But as long as you're going to do that, <laughs> let's let's just take the walking 62 miles a day out. Also, you don't walk 62 miles a day. Okay, the whole trek is you have 62. to run because you don't have time to <laughs> do 62 miles walking. And I don't think the walking is terribly difficult. So I don't know. Maybe you could do somewhere between 10 and 20 miles a day, and then stretch it out for however many days you want. You're right. It depends on how many sidewalk cafes you stop in. Yeah. All right. So another long. We don't really know the well, answer no, to that question. Well, no, I think the answer to that is a big yes. Oh, it's a big yes. <laughs> Kimberly Joy. All right, Matt. And the third part of her question, part-time van life. What do you think? Yes or no? There is no way <laughs> we're doing that. <laughs> if we have two vans, maybe. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was no. not the right answer. No, I, I will say, in, in all seriousness, when we rented that little uh, cruiseamerica.com thing, I, I loved it. But that was for a week. <laughs> that was for a week. That's not, no, we're not doing this for life. No, here's the thing. You know, we've talked to a lot of people who are doing the van life thing, and there are definitely some great parts about it, but there are also some negatives like trying to find a place to park it every night and trying to find a place to take a shower and looking for internet access. So, you know, at our stage of life and this podcast that we're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like any stage, like breathing. That's you mean that stage? (laughs) We need to be as efficient as we can with our time when we travel because we want to hike and we want to be outside. We don't want to be looking for places to to park the van or a place to take a shower or a place to find internet. So that's a no for us. (laughs) I could do it for a week or two, but I, I like to be clean. Yes. So, yes. And, and I like to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Without other like other people watching <laughs> or something like that. Also, you know, you have to you have to weigh the cost of this van, right? So we know a few people who bought the Winnebago Revel, and that starts at about two hundred thousand dollars, and good for them. <laughs> but I think even if you bought a used, tricked out van, you're going to spend what at least seventy five k to a hundred. Yeah, it, it's not a money-saving option for traveling unless the van is your home and it's your full-time home. Because I've done the math. I, I don't think the math ever works out. The van gives you access to these great places. So you're waking up in the place mm-hmm. as opposed to waking up at a Hampton Inn and then you got to drive to wherever you're going. I mean, it's the night before. You can sit by your little solo stove if you're doing dispersed camping, you're right there in it, and then you just go right to bed as opposed to you know driving to the town and finding your hotel. So I, I get that, but it's not a – I don't think it's a save money thing. No, I don't either. And I think one other thing that I didn't mention is we, we follow some van life people on Instagram, and they're posting their stories and sharing what their life is like. These are full-time van life people, though. When they're out and they hit a stretch of rainy weather where it's raining for a week – they are literally sitting in that van in the middle of nowhere. They have no internet. They have, you know, they're reading a book and sitting in the van. And again, you know, that's probably not how we would choose to spend our time on a rainy day like that. So yeah, I don't read books. <laughs> so I, I don't know. You'd really be in trouble. I would be in trouble. 
Yeah. And so would I, because you'd be looking at me. I'd be reading your book over your shoulder. That that wouldn't be good. All right. Well, those are really great questions, Kimberly Joy. So thank you for for those. Yeah. In last week's mailbag episode, we talked about our emergency road kit that we keep in our truck. And I forgot to mention one very important item, our rumple puffy blanket. It's compact, lightweight, and takes up almost no room. It's always in our truck when we travel, but it's not just for emergencies. I always use it when we're in a park, watching the sunset, or attending an evening ranger program. And it seems like you're always underneath it when we're sleeping in a tent or even a cabin somewhere. Right, but in case of an emergency, like we get stuck someplace and have to spend the night in the truck, it's reassuring to know that our rumple blanket is there to keep us from freezing. It's made out of the same material used in puffy jackets and premium sleeping bags. And Rumpel recycles over 5 million plastic water bottles a year to offset their carbon footprint. In fact, each blanket is made from 60 recycled water bottles. Who knew that water bottles could be so warm and cozy? And Rumpel has a great deal for our listeners. If you order a blanket from the Rumpel website and use the code DEAR, you'll save 15%. That's D-E-A-R. So check out all the beautiful blankets on www.rumple.com. That's R-U-M-P-L. You'll want to take one everywhere. All right. What else we got, Karen? Okay. This is a really good question. This is from Martha, and she starts out, strange question. I was wondering which parks allow relatives to spread ashes of a loved one. Also, what is the process for legally doing that? Thanks. P.S. I love your books and podcasts. Well, this seems to be a popular activity. I get it. Uh, people want to do this for their loved ones, or it's it's uh, something that the loved one has asked. But, you know, every park has different rules and regulations, so there's not one answer to this. So you really, really need to check with the park. Often you can find this information on the park's website. So I was curious I wanted to do a check of some of the more popular parks. When you go to the specific park website, there is a search field up in the right corner. And if you type in scattering ashes, it will come up. Here are some popular parks. Yosemite is a yes, you can. Yellowstone, yes. Zion, Glacier, Rocky Mountain, and Great Smoky Mountains. Those are all yes. In fact, the only one I came across And again, I didn't look at every national park. Grand Canyon was a no. You cannot spread them in Grand Canyon. What what about Biscayne National Park? (laughs) I didn't check that one. (laughs) What about Cuyahoga Valley? Stop, stop. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The process is on the website, they have an application. So you fill out the application, you submit it, you get a special use permit, And then they will tell you what their specific rules are. Some parks, there are certain areas you can't spread the ashes and so forth. So it's all on the park's website. But note, you do need to start this process at least a month or two before you go. You you can't show up at the park with the ashes and then make this happen. Yeah, it's not like you can literally go to the visitor center and try to get a permit like that day or something like that. I mean, it, it's it's a process. So right. build that time into, into your plans. And also, I think you found out that national forests 
do not allow. Right. It's surprising because usually it's the other way around. Usually national forests permit a lot more things to happen than the national parks. But the national forests are all a no. You cannot spread ashes in a national forest. So just FYI on that. Um, The other thing I should mention, too, is if you plan on having a big gathering, let's say it's more of a memorial service and you have 75 people coming in for the spreading of ashes, then there's another process of getting a special use group permit. So there's more involved if you plan on having a lot of people. So you'll want to check that out too. Yeah, generally, and this isn't the rule everywhere, but usually in a a lot of places, a lot of public lands, 12 people is kind of the maximum that you're really supposed to have in your groups. Even if you're just hiking on a trail, uh, they don't want the, you know, huge 50 person, hundred person groups hiking on a trail. And they, in a lot of places, they really do enforce this. Oh yeah. For yeah sure. So uh, mm-hmm. that, that's another good, good point. If you're going to have more than 10 or 12 people, you also have to uh, make the park aware of that and get a permit if, if it's required. So great question, Martha. And basically, I think overall, the answer is yes, but definitely whatever particular park you have in mind, double check on their website to see if you can. All right. So our next question is from Lois, just Lois. Mm -hmm. I don't think she has a last name, but Mm -hmm. I mean, name like Lois, you don't need a last name. You just go by Lois. That's right. Anyway, Lois says, I am one of your seven listeners who anxiously await your Thursday podcast. (laughs) That was funny. She got it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) She says, I'm turning 65 this summer and, and I'm trying to figure out what my next chapter will be. You have inspired me to make visiting the parks my priority. I dream of hitting the road and taking my time to mosey around the western states one region at a time. I'd like to see the parks, but also would like to take some time to see some of the lesser known historical sites along the way. My problem is I am a widow and would primarily be traveling alone. I'm fairly independent, but I'm concerned about safety and loneliness. I worry that not having someone to share experiences with would be difficult. I am in good physical shape and I am definitely not ready for group trips with seniors on a bus. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this. What do you see as benefits and potential pitfalls from Lois, the wandering widow? Okay. Okay. First of all, Lois, the fact that you signed it Lois, the wandering widow, and and the fact that you're asking us this question, I think speaks a lot about you, that you would even consider this. And I... I think it's wonderful, and I I think uh, we would highly encourage you to go out and see the parks. Yeah, I do think there's uh, there is an issue with um, seeing these incredible places by yourself and not having somebody to share them with. I, you know, I'm a pretty introverted person, and I definitely do not enjoy places that I just see experience myself. So I think that is something to consider. Absolutely. Yes, it's good you're thinking about that now. You know, we see a lot of solo travelers, especially women. We see a lot of women on the trails. We see a lot of women camping alone. Um, So you would definitely not be the only one out there doing it. But let's talk about, first of all, let's talk about safety. So with regard to safety, you know, you need to have the tent essentials with you and bear spray. Um, and bear spray is just a great thing to have within reach anyway. If you're on a trail, it's, it, it can be used for other animals as well. And, and it's also a good personal protection. 
I would suggest making sure you have roadside assistance like a triple A membership and then emergency items like, you know, food in your car, water, blanket, flashlight, those kinds of things that just in case you're stuck somewhere, especially water or a way to gather water or purify it. You know, if there are a lot of instances where somebody's gone off the road or just gotten stuck in their car for days somewhere, you are going to die of dehydration way before you die of, of hunger. Right. Right. So you mm-hmm. you can go without eating for a long, long time, but you, you can't go many days without water. So water is super important. Uh, we always have a gallon or two of water in our car just for emergencies and some way to purify water. So that's, that's kind of a, a safety thing. Right. Also, I think that for for the national parks in the West, they are all now very crowded. And so you would be amongst a lot of people. You would be hiking on the trails with a lot of people. So I feel like there is safety in numbers. And yes, you absolutely want to have the 10 essentials and you want to be ready to self-rescue if you need to. But that being said, there would probably also be a lot of people around who could help you. So I think that um, going to the, the National Park Service sites, I think those are fairly safe. Yeah, I agree. So on the loneliness issue, you know, there are a lot of ranger-led hikes uh, or tours in in the parks, and we have done many of these. And, you know, in general, the people you find on these tours are are great. You're not going to go on a ranger-led anything if you're not interested in the park and, and the, the area. So you kind of already have something in common with the other people on the tour. Exactly. And you're not doing it alone. And the rangers are such a wealth of knowledge and information that you will undoubtedly learn some things that you didn't know. So we would recommend any park you go to look up the ranger led tours, look up the ranger led hikes, look up if they're having festivals and and join in on those things where there are a lot of like minded people, people who are passionate about the parks there with you. Yeah, and another point is you could stay inside the parks in the lodges, uh, and that is a great way to meet people. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, these lodges are usually booked up, so there's going to be pl- plenty of other park goers around that you can meet and, and talk with. Yeah, we can't tell you how many times we've been sitting at uh, at a little table having a cocktail, and the people next to us start talking to us and ask us about what parks have we been to, or we're sitting at the bar, and the person next to us starts chatting. People are very friendly and interested, and that's another great way is if you can, you know, instead of staying in a Hampton Inn in a, in a suburb nearby, try to stay inside the park because that will make a world of difference. Yeah, you're going to have no shortage of other people to talk and talk with and visit uh, if, if you stay in the lodges. Right. Yeah, and you know, there's also, there's other options besides just seniors on a bus, right? I mean, there are tours, I, I know Backroads, um, that company offers some great trips. So does REI. We've never taken a Backroads or, or REI trip, but we've heard from other people who have, and they always seem to really enjoy it. And those kind of trips, you would be doing some interesting things. You know, some have more strenuous hikes, some have easier. So it depends on what you want to do. But I would definitely also seek out maybe some of those kinds of tour groups because you might absolutely love letting somebody else be in charge and, and planning the trip. And then you go along as as a tour member. And we've always had great luck with ORS, O-A-R-S. Those those are river trips. There's a lot of times that, that just a single individual is joining the group. Oh, a lot of yeah, times. Yeah, and, and right. those are fantastic trips. So that's another way of, of doing something where you're part of a group, 
uh, but it's not, like you said, seniors on a bus. Well, sure. That, and that's another good point is there are river trips, float trips, horse pack trips, all kinds of uh, different activity-based trips that you could also check out. But back to your question about going by yourself and wandering through the West, why not give it a try? You know, what do you have to lose? You might go to one or two parks and you're you're lonely and you don't like it. But I think that if you give it a good solid go, like a big chunk of time, it might be life-changing, right? Yeah, it could be. And, and one thing that we did, and we got a lot of criticism of this when we wrote the Dear Bob and Sue books, you know, we just decided to go to all the national parks and that gave us a goal. And, and so people were saying, well, you were just going to all the parks to check them off the list. And, and partly that was true, and, and that, that's not a great reason to see all the parks, but it was a goal that caused us to go to places we wouldn't go otherwise. And I think it, it wasn't really about just seeing the parks. It was the journey that it put us on by having that goal. So you could say you're going to start out by, let's say, visiting every NPS site in New Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even though you might not know all those sites and have a specific reason why you want to see them, it, it causes you to go see places that you normally wouldn't. Exactly. So there are 18 National Park Service sites in New Mexico with incredible history and a, a lot of great archaeological sites. Then, as you said, Matt, then your journey becomes a quest, right? You have a mission, you have a purpose that keeps you going. So maybe that's what you start with. And you say, I'm going to go to all the NPS sites in New Mexico. Then when you're done with that, you can assess, you know, did you love it? What would you change? And then then take it from there. Right. You could just go to the next state and say, I'm going to, I want to see four incredible state parks in state of Arizona, whatever. Right. And I guarantee you along the way, you're going to find other things that are interesting. You are. So Lois, you know, we wish you all the best on this. I think that you are way too young to not do this, to, to give up before you try and to sit on the couch. Obviously, you have a young spirit and an, an adventurous spirit just by posing this question. So we think you should give it a go. And please write back to us and let us know how it goes, what we will be thinking of you out there and wondering, uh, wondering where you are and what you are up to. Yeah, good luck. Okay. Okay, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, it comes from Daniel, and he wrote, The next trip I'm planning is to your neck of the country, planning a trip to visit Olympic, Mount Rainier, and North Cascades next summer. I'm struggling with where to stay for North Cascades. Despite a bunch of research, good for you, Daniel, I can't zero in on where to stay. We're going with our eight-year-old daughter, so ideally looking for a place that with a decent hotel and enough around to get dinner plus groceries for going into the park. And of course, be close enough to drive into the park for the day. Leavenworth seems like a lot of fun, but it also looks to be too far away to be a practical base camp for exploring North Cascades. Any advice on where to look or any other generic advice for that trip? The, the first thing we'll say is North Cascades National Park is different than a lot of other national parks. It's a wilderness park that you kind of have to get at it from the edges. So right. it's unlike most other national parks, just to begin with. Right. And good for you for doing research. And you are correct. Leavenworth is too far away to stay for a base camp for North Cascades. Way too far. But we do have a suggestion for you. Yeah, you could stay in Winthrop on the east side of the park. Winthrop's a little town. It's off the off Highway 20. 
North Cascades Highway. Mm-hmm. It's a little, uh, looks like a wild, wild west town. Yeah, it's a western yeah. town. Yeah. There are a lot of lodging options in Winthrop. There is a great brewery, a bakery, two outfitter stores, a few restaurants, a grocery store, and a hardware store, and lots more. Really anything you need, you could find in Winthrop. And it's not a very big town. It has about 500 residents and a lot of tourists in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, matter of fact, there's a lot of tourists in the winter also because there's a lot of great winter activities to do in and around that area. So Winthrop is a Western theme. It looks like a, you know, a historic cowboy town, but, but it's not, um, it's not really stupid. <laughs> it's, it's not, not stupid. Right. It's not, stu- matter of fact, they have a sign <laughs> on the highway as you're approaching town, Winthrop, we're not stupid. <laughs> so, it's their new marketing slogan. It's, it's a marketing sl- slogan. I like it. I guess what I mean is it's not touristy and fake. Like, we've heard bad things about Tombstone, Arizona. Now, we've never been, so we're not saying it's bad, but we have heard people say it's just very, very touristy. Winthrop isn't like that. Winthrop was incorporated into a town back in 1924. So, what, it's almost 100 years old. Almost. Yeah. Well, and if you're that old, you're not stupid. You learn a lot of lessons in 100 years. In 1972, when Highway 20, the North Cascades Highway, was almost done. Several business people got together and began planning for all the travelers that they knew would be coming through town. And they came up with the idea of a Western restoration. So all of the local merchants at the time pitched in, and one of the residents paid the balance for the reconstruction. You know, they they repainted and they had new signs. And now, currently, you have to follow certain codes when you want to do new construction in Winthrop. So it has that same look of, of the Wild West. They have a big festival in May called 49er Days, which celebrates Old West heritage. And there's a parade with horses and covered wagons, followed by a steak and barbecue dinner and a pie eating contest. Why haven't we done this before? (laughs) I don't know. We need to go. I think it's always the first weekend in May. We need to put that on the calendar. Winthrop is fairly close to the park complex. If you're staying in Winthrop and you drive about 30 minutes west on Highway 20, you're going to be in the general park complex where there are things to do, there are pullouts, kind of where you're, you'll start your day. So yeah, about a half an hour drive. Yeah, you, you need a map. And the reason I say this is because there are three big NPS sites that are all kind of co-managed together as part of that uh, North Cascades National Park region. There's the Ross Lake National Recreation Area, and there's the Lake Chelan National Recreation Area, and then there's North Cascades National Park. And the part of the park right along Highway 20, it's it's never National Park. It's one of those other two recreation (laughs) areas. But the NPS considers that all part of the park complex, if, if you will. Right. So Winthrop is a great base. It's just not far. And it's a beautiful drive. And you will want to, one more suggestion, there's a tiny town, very tiny, of Mazama that you will pass through. And if you turn off, you will find the Mazama General Store. Uh, and that's a great place to stop, either on your way into the park or on your way out. Yeah, in, in Mazama, that general store is fantastic. They've got uh, a great bakery. They serve beer there. You can get a sandwich. Um, yeah, and, and they're they're building other little stores and interesting places in Mazama. It's not very big. Oh, no, it's tiny. It's like a block. Yeah, definitely worth a stop. All righty. Karen, do we have any more questions? We do. And this next question comes from someone named 
Kitchy Strings. That was their email address, and they did not leave a name. So this is from Kitchy Strings. And this person wrote, I'm going to Glacier National Park in June. Are there any other roads besides going to the Sun Road that are a nice drive with glacier views and pull-offs to easy to moderate hikes? Thank you for your information. I enjoy yours and Matt's sharing of your knowledge and experience in the great outdoors. Also, you seem like really fun people. <laughs> yeah, fun. That's a, that's our house. It's a fun house here. It's all fun all, fun all the time. All day long. Yes. <laughs> all right, Kitchy. I, I forgot the question already, but... Uh, what, oh, so going to the Sun Road, other, other roads, mm-hmm. drives through... Glacier National Park. Mm-hmm. Well, there is on the east side of the park, there is the Two Medicine area. That's pretty. Yeah, and it's kind of over by the town of East Glacier. So East Glacier is is a town that's outside the park. It has a little railroad depot and a, and a lodge there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Two Medicine area, you drive into it and it dead ends at the lake. Uh, and then from there, there's multiple trails, and you can also take boat tours of the lake. And when you're there, check out the Two Medicine Camp Store. Yeah, we loved that little camp store. You know, usually I'm not that into gift stores. Right? Uh, yeah, so now you're <laughs> in the gift store. But this Two Medicine Camp Store was originally built in 1914 by the Glacier Park Hotel Company, which was a subsidiary of the Great Northern Railway, as part of the railway's extensive program of backcountry chalets. So it once was a chalet, but now it's just a gift store instead of a lodge. But it still feels very, well, it is very historic, feels very National Park Service rustic. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, and and like I said, the little town of East Glacier, when you're over in that area, there is the Glacier Park Lodge. And that's a spectacular, classic National Park-type lodge. And it was also built in 1913 by the Great Northern Railway. So that, that's a historic area, too. And that, that's also an interesting part of the, the park area to see. Yeah, definitely go in and check out the lodge. The most massive Douglas fir timbers in the lobby that you will ever see in your entire life. It's absolutely beautiful. Another part of the park that's one of our favorites, you have to take a road into it. You can't drive through the park. It's kind of a dead end to get there, but it's spectacular. The Many Glacier Area. It's on the east side of the park, kind of the northeastern segment of the park. Right. And this area has a beautiful scenery for a drive, but it also has fantastic trails. And it has the incredibly beautiful Many Glacier Hotel, which is another historic hotel that you should check out. Even if you're not staying there, you should go in and take a look at it. But get back into this area early because it has limited parking. Yeah, that whole mini glacier area, they close the access when the parking lots are full. So the last time we were there, and we were staying about an hour away from the mini glacier area, we asked a ranger what time we should get there to make sure we should we could get in. And she said, be there by eight, you know, be be on that road at the little park entrance kiosk by eight o'clock so that you can uh, make sure that you get in before they close it down. Yeah, so there's great hikes in that area. There's also, you can take a boat tour of Swift Current Lake and Lake Josephine. Those lakes are kind of right next to each other. And so that's another activity to do. And the trails, lots of trails from easy trails to very strenuous trails back there. So that's that's a full day if you plan to hike to, to go back to the mini glacier area. Yeah, and another part of the park uh, that we've just discovered in the last few years is in the northwestern 
segment of the park, if you will, the North Fork Pole Breach area. And what most people come here to see is Bowman Lake. It's not a scenic drive, but but once you're at the lake, that's a really incredible sight. Oh, the lake is beautiful. And there are several hiking trails there at the lake you can do. Now, this road, the six-mile road that you take back to Bowman Lake, it's unpaved. And it's fairly narrow and windy. So vehicles over 21 feet in length and anybody pulling a trailer combination, that is prohibited. Yeah, because there's really no no place to turn around right. if you're up there. Mm-hmm. So something that's new this year is you need a North Fork vehicle reservation if you're going to take a vehicle back there and access the North Fork area of the park through the Polebridge entrance station. And, and they're requiring this from May 27th through September 11th of 2022. Now that's from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Right. So I guess you don't need one if it's outside those hours. No, you don't. And the other thing too is this is another area where if you want to go to Bowman Lake, when that parking lot is full, they close the road and and you have to wait in line until a car comes out, then they let a car go in. So if you want to drive back to Bowman Lake, you also want to get there early. Maybe this day use reservation system, they're going to limit it enough where it won't be a problem. But we would suggest if you want to go see Bowman Lake, go early. Yeah. So Bowman Lake is a must-see if you're in the Polebridge area, but another place you have to stop is the Polebridge Mercantile. It's mm. just right outside the park, uh, and they have incredible baked goods. Yes. They're famous for their huckleberry baked goods. We always get the huckleberry bear claws, and they are unbelievable. Our big mistake was we only bought one each. We weren't thinking clearly. <laughs> and after we left and, you know, we were an hour away, we thought, gosh, why didn't we buy like 10 of them? Right. And we had waited in line. Uh, this was during COVID. So they were only letting a few people in the store at a time. Yeah, we stood in a long line to get our baked goods, and we should have bought more. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. Yeah, you cannot go to the Polebridge area and not stop at the Polebridge Mercantile. So um, kitschy strings, I hope that's helpful. Lots of beautiful scenery to see in Glacier in addition to going to the Sun Road. Okay, anything else for this episode of Mailbag, Karen? Our very last question comes from Steve in Cincinnati. Here is his question. I know you guys love Cheez-Its as much as I do, but have you tried the extra toasty flavor? It could change your life. <laughs> well, well, Steve, I, I I will tell you, you are not the first or the fifth person to bring this topic up to us. Uh, often people have recommended the extra toasty. We even tried them once. I don't know. I, I think they taste burnt. Some people absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. I kind of agree with you, man. I think there's a little bit of a burnt taste. Now, if you guys don't know, Matt is a purist. He likes the original. That's it. Yeah, look, I would eat the unbaked ones. Like if I would <laughs> go the other direction, not the extra toasty. Raw? <laughs> Are you saying raw? Do you think they have take and bake Cheez-Its? <laughs> if, they, if they sold take and bake Cheez-Its at the grocery store where you bake them in your own oven and then they give you a packet of salt so you could shower them with salt. I would do that. So the other night we were in bed and Matt, wait, has, wait, wait, and Matt wait. is on his laptop and I look over and he's watching a YouTube video and he has his headphones on and I, I look at what he's watching and he is watching how Cheez-Its are made at the factory. <laughs> I'm like, oh God. 
You know what my favorite part of that was? What? It's there there's a section where you know it's a mile long conveyor belt that goes goes through all the processes, but I think they called it the salt blizzard. Oh, that's yeah. a nice term. Yeah, the salt blizzard, the 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 biscuits, I don't know what they call them. They call them biscuits, pastries, whatever. I don't know. The where the biscuits pass through the salt blizzard. I watched that segment of the YouTube video several times. <laughs> I know the extra, extra toasty. They must slow the conveyor belt down and and uh, bake them extra long. Yeah. Now, I am a little concerned about the number of varieties that there that are, out are a there. lot now. I like the white cheddar ones. I don't. Well. They're okay. What I don't like are the grooves. I don't like the grooves. Why not? I just don't. It's just not even a cheese it. And here's my problem with all the different varieties. And I don't care what what people like and what they want to eat. That's that's fine. It's just sometimes there's so many varieties you can't find the originals. I know. And sometimes they don't even they don't even stock the originals because they're stocking all the other flavors. I would think that you would like the ones that are called big. So basically, it's the I same would. thing. I've had those. I know, and they're they're just bigger. Bigger is not always better, you know. I th- <laughs> think that. Is that I, right? I think we did. I think we got those one time, and it just wasn't. No, that look, they have got it down. They have perfected the size, the shape, the amount of salt blizzard that they put on them, mm-hmm. the amount of baking. Well, and now they have all those. Is it called duos? Duos where they throw in like the pretzels and all the other. No, stuff. this That's is just this is wrong. happening. It's happening to no. in a lot of areas of our life. There are a lot of Oreos. <laughs> You got the du- double stuff, the mega stuff. You've got the, the mint. The, no, like just just the chocolate, an, just an Oreo. Mm, uh, it was it was perfected. Anyway, um, no, that's a, we're, uh, I'm an original. Yeah, cheese it original fan. You're definitely an original. Man. I would love to do the factory tour. Do you think that they would let us? Where is the factory tour? Well, I don't know if they actually have one, but the Cheez-Its were originally made in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, and they started producing them in 1921. So so they just had their 100-year anniversary. We missed it. We did not celebrate that. Oh, my that. gosh. We didn't even know. All right. We're going to make that our mission. That would be a great podcast. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. Do you think they would let me reach in and grab a handful? Alarms would go off. They would have to stop the line. They would have to clear all the cheese it's like from 10 feet before and 10 feet after where i grabbed them i want to see you with a hairnet on i have no hair. and the uniform i want to see you like working the line absolutely <laughs> i would absolutely work there all right we're gonna look into this uh I we'll get buy, back with y'all on where I'm it get is a job there i'm the, one of my first questions is when is my probation period over <laughs> <laughs> when do i have to be fired for cause and what kind of cheese it discount would you get? And are there any misshapen ones that don't make the cut that you get to eat at the end of your shift? No, after watching the video, I can tell you that they're all perfect. There are no misshapen cheeses. <laughs> okay, Steve. Thank you for the question. We're glad that you're enjoying the extra toasty. We probably won't be making the switch anytime soon. But hey, to each his own, right? Right, right. No- nothing wrong with the extra toasty. I right. just, I just prefer the original. Okay, thank you all for the great questions today. Uh, that was a lot of fun. If you have a mailbag question for a future episode, please send it to us at Matt and Karen Smith at gmail.com. All right. See you next time. See you next time. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for hanging out with us for the last hour or so. We'll be back next week with an episode about some of our favorite ranger-led tours in the national park system. From Glacier Bay in Alaska all the way to Dry Tortugas off the coast of Florida, we have been on some fantastic ranger-led tours. On boats, in archaeological ruins, in caves, and in canyons. But the tour that I'm most interested in is the Cheez-It Factory (laughs) Tour. So I'm off to find out how that could happen. If anyone listening knows how we could get in on the Cheez-It Factory Tour, let us know. If we have to wear a hairnet, I'm out. Well, I don't have to worry about that. (laughs) 